Hey, Acquired listeners. We recorded this episode a few weeks ago in what already feels like a very different era. Obviously, we live in a whole new world now with the spread of the novel coronavirus and the global health, economic, and frankly, emotional fallout as a result. Yeah. In that vein, we have a few announcements to make. First, and most importantly, we're thinking about all of you right now and in the weeks and months ahead. Many of us know people who've lost their jobs or businesses already, uh, or even worse, whose families have been affected, and that's likely just going to grow significantly in the coming weeks. We want you all to know that Ben, myself, and the whole acquired community are here to support each other. It's true. And uh, related to that, we are going to make some changes for now to both the community and the acquired show itself. As for the show, we'll share more in the days ahead. On the community side, we're changing a few aspects of our Slack uh, to help us all do everything that we can to support each other right now. You'll find all the details in the announcement that we've pinned to the general channel. And if you haven't joined our Slack yet, now is a great time to do so. You can find a link on our website. We think it's especially important to find ways to try to be together right now, virtually, even when physically we have to be apart. <laughs> yep. Uh, one other thing, I'm a believer that when you have a voice, you should use it. And uh, David and I are fortunate to be able to talk to all of you. So in this time, we are here to tell you to stay home. Most of you who listen to the show are already doing this, but we figure if we can touch just one person, we can make a difference. Social distancing really works and has saved countless lives in countries across the globe. If it's not bad in your city yet, be the reason that it won't be. We promise you will look like a hero later for reacting early and reacting quickly. And of course, go pick up some takeout food from local restaurants you love. Amen on both of those. Finally, one last thing. Uh, some of you might be wondering why, despite everything we're saying here, we still decided to release this episode right now. We thought about it a lot, and we decided to go ahead, uh, one, because even with everything going on, um, we think the world does still need some entertainment and most importantly to laugh. Um, and some of the things that we say in here are pretty funny now in retrospect. Uh, two, though, we also thought it was a good reminder that um, even as tough as things are and are likely to get right now, at some point things will return to normal again and it will seem completely normal to debate the top 10 acquisitions of all time. So hopefully this will be a little um, reminder of that. Yep. Well, thank you to everyone for being on this journey with us. Stay safe and healthy. We will get through this together. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 3 of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today, we are tackling an episode to cover the question we get asked most. What are the best acquisitions of all time and what can we learn from them? So today, here it is, the Acquired Top 10. Acquired Top 10. We figure we're over 100 episodes in now. It's time for a Greatest Hits album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listeners, the idea originally started as a blog post, uh, which you can find linked at the top of the show notes. But we wanted to do an episode with really more of a director's cut of the list and how we thought about each one, since even though there's lots of numbers involved, it's not quite an objective exercise. 
We reserve the right to grade as we see fit. As always. All right, a few announcements before we dive in. First, we had a great limited partner episode this week with Hamilton Helmer, and you can listen to a segment of it attached at the end of this episode. For those who don't know Hamilton's name, he is the author of Seven Powers, which David recently described to me as the best business strategy book out there. Now, David is in good company here, getting high praise from strategy master Reed Hastings at Netflix, Daniel Eck at Spotify, Peter Thiel, and many, many more. So we had to, of course, have the author on the LP show. Now, if you want to go deeper on company building topics, you can become an acquired limited partner and get access to all the things that come with that by clicking the link in the show notes or going to glow.fm slash acquired and all subscriptions come with a seven day free trial. Hamilton was fantastic. Super fun. Indeed. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two. Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added... Arguably, almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right, David, how on earth are we structuring this episode? Well, instead of history and facts, we're going to replace that with notes and methodology today. It must be two things coupled by an and in the middle. Exactly. Ampersand, not an and. Oh, is it an ampersand? Do you know they're not interchangeable? Really? Yeah. Whoa, that's shocking to me. This is like little known uh, nerd facts. So I'm not going to get this exactly right, 
but it is when you are coupling two things together rather than when you are using and uh, in the way that you sort of would in a in a sentence as a, like format. compound sentence as a conjunction and whatnot. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I also it has a cousin called etc. And there's a crazy you can go sort of research the evolution of this glyph, but if you think about uh, the and sign, the ampersand sign, not the big curly one that looks like an S, but sort of the smaller one that has two curly things on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually an ET. Oh. And so it sort of comes from the same root as et cetera does. I think we could have a whole spin-off podcast about this. I think so too. <laughs> Origins of odd typography and oh. linguistics. All right. Well, back to <laughs> the lecture at hand. So first off, we thought about all acquisitions out there in history. We didn't necessarily limit ourselves to just the technology universe, as you will see as we go through the list here. But the big caveat is it's based on kind of what we know in our universe and our experience. So there may be ones out there that you know we didn't identify, that we slipped. We thought a little bit about some of the Berkshire Hathaway acquisitions. Um, obviously, they are fantastic. But by some of the criteria that we look at, don't quite compare to what we have on our list. Big caveat that we may be missing some, and obviously, please write in if you have super interesting ones, and we'll have to just cover them on the show in the future. Yes, please. Also, the acquired Slack at uh, acquired.fm would be an awesome place, because I think this one is going to be a uh, good fodder for, for community discussion. Yeah. Okay, so that's caveat one. Caveat two, enough time has to have passed since the yep. acquisition that we can make a definitive call. Yep. So we're not going to be talking about like uh, Visa's acquisition of Plaid here, or Credit Karma, or anything that just happened you know, in the last few weeks or even in the last couple of years. We need to be able to say definitively what the outcome was here. Yep. Another thing is it must be a majority purchase. So uh, there are many uh, amazing pickups of minority shares in companies, better known as uh, investments. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, one listener... Naspers or uh, Naspers Tencent comes to mind. Yep. Or, um, one listener pointed out Liberty Media buying, uh, what, 40%, 40% of... Uh, Sirius XM, uh, which is now worth over, I think, $20 billion. Think 20 billion. Yeah, that was incredible. I remember being a media investment banker, investment banking analyst on Wall Street at the time, and uh, seeing this happen and just being like, Sirius XM? My dad listens to Sirius XM. That's a dumb idea. These, are, <laughs> these guys are going to go bankrupt. And um, yeah, that was why I'm no longer a media investment banker. <laughs> yeah, just a world-class podcaster instead. <laughs> Another one, this represents a moment in time with company market capitalizations as of the end of March 3rd, last night when we compiled a lot of this data, in the midst of the U.S. Democratic primary, coronavirus, and everything else going on in our macroeconomic world right now. And so this you know, episode may not be the exact order that we would rank it five years from now, even one year from now, even six months from now. Uh, so it, it definitely represents a, a moment in time, though I think directionally correct for a while. Yeah. This episode, may we may actually be the actual music that is playing on the Titanic while, while deck chairs are being rearranged, but uh, <laughs> Oof. we'll see. Hopefully not. Oof. Yeah. Well, as you know, on Acquired, the way we issue a grade is using this criteria. How good of a use of capital was it for the big company to buy the small company? So, of course, the way we ended up ranking our list, best we can tell, is what is the absolute dollar return in value to the big company from buying the smaller one? So, in other words, if I have a company worth a billion dollars, like acquired, and I buy David's piddly Only little startup. A billion. <laughs> 
David, your little startup's worth a dollar, and I, I pick it up for that. And my company then later becomes worth $2 billion by integrating your product. We would look at this as an acquisition that added nearly a billion dollars of value. And that's sort of how we would rank the million, So Look, I'm rounding up added, for you. I'm, no, value added minus the acquisition price because this is going to be important in a couple of these. It's a fair point. Last thing is in cases where, or at least the last notes and methodology that I have, in cases where the acquired company's product ended up becoming a component of a larger product uh, within the acquired company, we we thought of some sort of subjective discount of like in our estimation, what percentage is this acquired company's product responsible for the success of the ultimate product? Yeah, you could imagine if you bought maybe like a a way to make chips or maybe a programming language or or something like that. Where are you finding um, those examples? <laughs> you might uh, you might say that that's not responsible for all of the company's future value or even all of that product line's future value. Yep. All right. Now with all that out of the way, I think it's time to actually start moving through our our top 10 and yeah. dare I say our our top 15. We've got <laughs> actually some, 16. Ah. Uh, Adding too many to the list uh, here. Yeah. Well, we, we're only going to rank the top 10, but we have some honorable mentions to start with. First, and most aptly given recent acquired history, we would be completely remiss if we don't mention WhatsApp on this list. In my estimation, and as we talked about on the show, on the episode, definitely one of the best acquisitions of all time. However, by our criteria where we are looking at revenue and market cap contribution to the parent company. Oh, I don't think we said. So the way we tried to estimate market cap contribution of uh, the acquired companies into the parent companies was via the percentage of revenue that that company is now responsible at the parent company and then what the revenue multiples of the parent company are. We totally recognize that a lot of these companies don't trade on revenue multiples. They trade on free cash flow basis, but we can't get the cost structures of the acquired companies anymore. So this is the best we could do. Yep. Again, I think it's directionally correct. And the fun part about getting to do a show that's kind of the director's cut here is we can talk a little bit, uh, especially in, in playbook as we get into it, um, and hem and haw a little bit about uh, ones that we were too generous on or not generous enough by just thinking about it as as revenue contribution to yeah. the business. So by our screen, you know, WhatsApp essentially generates zero revenue for Facebook, so they're not going to show up on <laughs> so the list. They, they were far lower than 16, if you... <laughs> but uh, definitely deserve to be mentioned. For sure. For sure. It's funny how that one's a, I don't know, six-year-old acquisition that's still in camp too soon to tell. Yeah, serious. Well, we know that it was, a as we talked about, not too soon to tell on the defensive move front. Right. Too soon to tell on the revenue front. Yep. All right. Well, coming in at 15th, or I guess our first of our honorable mentions coming in, an episode that we have not yet done yet, uh, but a couple of listeners, especially recently, have been suggesting in the Slack that, that we try it. So that is... VMware being acquired by Dell EMC. First by acquired by EMC and then later EMC was of course swallowed up by Dell. This one is super interesting. You know, EMC acquired VMware for $625 million. VMware currently is doing right under nine billion dollars in revenue. Um, now EMC acquired 80% of VMware. So VMware has always had this public stub as a, that trades publicly um, of the rest of the equity. Super, super interesting though. The only reason this is so far down on the list is because of all the complicated EMC Dell stuff we'll get into when we do this episode someday. Dell is actually trading in the public markets 
at a significantly lower value than what their stake in VMware is worth. It's crazy. It's completely nuts. I think we saw this with that holding company that owned part of what episode was that where there was like a nine person holding company based in uh, um, it was uh, uh, Altaba. Altaba, that's right, owning the stake in Alibaba. Yeah. Where it actually traded lower than what their percentage of Alibaba was worth. We thought that was crazy. I mean, the discount, and again, we haven't done all the math here and know the whole corporate structure and everything, um, but with that caveat, the discount at which Dell is trading on the public markets simply to the 80% they own of VMware, which is also publicly traded, is astounding. Yeah, so on the one hand, it's it's a cheap way to pick up some uh, access to VMware. On the other hand, the way the stock market is uh, is sort of behaving, they're putting a massive, massive uh, discount on it for its lack of being able to escape out of Dell. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Next, we have our near and dear to our hearts, both a heartbreaker and our very first acquired episode, Pixar. Pixar. So in 2006, Disney, which uh, at some point we got to cover Disney on this show, you know, David? (laughs) Uh, Disney bought Pixar in a landmark $7.4 billion deal. And I thought this one would be a lot higher. Uh, But we'd like to walk you through sort of how we how we did the math on this and the absolute dollar return that we're looking at that that, you know, from a bunch of our estimates and this methodology um, is about $2.3 billion to Disney's market cap. And the way we sort of thought about that is Pixar is basically good for a film a year. Yep. And as much as I wanted to do this by summing all of the profits or maybe abstracting one layer up and summing all of the revenues from all their films, really the right way to think about, especially as we're thinking about contribution to market cap, is how much revenue of Disney's annual revenue are they responsible for every year? Yeah. Which is effectively one film's worth. Yep. Now, what is one Pixar film worth in revenue from its sort of worldwide gross uh, after release? It's about a billion dollars in the success case. You look at The Incredibles 2 or Toy Story 4, each brought in right around a billion dollars. Because of our Disney episode, we know that you make about twice as much from parks and merch as you make from the film itself, or at least the division as a whole does. So we felt it was reasonable to say triple the uh, the amount of money that any given film gets from the box office to sort of its total revenue contribution to Disney. And you get about $3 billion. And so contributing about $3 billion in, in revenue per year to Disney out of their close to $70 billion market cap. Um, $70 billion revenue. Sorry, se- $70 billion in revenue. You get to just just under $10 billion in market cap contribution from Pixar. But of course, they paid $7.4 billion for it. So when you net those two out, you get incrementally about $2.3 billion in market cap contribution from yep. Pixar. This, you should also note, is our lowest annualized return out of anything from the entire list uh, with about 2% per year since this was a uh, a 10-year-old acquisition. Well, we're going to have... 14-year-old acquisition. We're going to have some more discussion in grading about this (laughs) one. (laughs) Okay, next on the list, another uh, fun episode from Acquired's History, our first big independent live show, uh, Venmo. Um, Pick up by PayPal in 2012 for 26 million dollars paypal uh was recently announced doing about 300 million in annual revenue or sorry venmo doing about 300 million in annual revenue within paypal 
you do the math and that nets out to market cap contribution within PayPal of about two and a half billion dollars. Not bad for buying it for 26 million. Yeah. And, and of course, this went through Braintree. So it was 26 million that Braintree bought it for. And then less than a year later, that was picked up for 800 million, but sort of rolled that 26 forward since that is the isolated number for for Venmo alone. Um, now, David, I will say still not profitable. The, Indeed. But, uh, you know, not not a part yeah, of our prof- analysis. Profits, here. profits. What are you talking about? We <laughs> t- care about revenue here on Acquired. No. <laughs> but they do. Uh, it is worth noting that they did give guidance that they thought uh, this that by the end of the year, Venmo would be a profitable unit. So that's an interesting, interesting update to our Venmo episode. Yep. Next, we have Bungie near and dear to my heart. Uh, my heart played so many, so many sessions of Halo over the years. Microsoft's pickup of Bungie in the year 2000 for an estimated 30 million dollars now this one was really interesting to think about because the halo franchise in total has generated about five billion dollars in revenue over the life of the franchise and of course microsoft got that ip as part of the acquisition but you also got to think about how many xboxes did halo sell and no halo what would have happened to the xbox franchise Um, the xbox franchise generates about 11 billion dollars in annual revenue for microsoft we estimated current market cap contribution of that $30 million Halo, uh, Bungie Halo pickup in 2000 to be about $8 billion currently. It's funny, like this is an honorable mention that doesn't make our top 10 list, but like, oh my God, getting that thing for $30 million, even with all the work they poured into it afterward, was a friggin' steal in order to bootstrap the Xbox business. Totally, totally. I mean, it was the killer app. Yep. Speaking right. of killer apps. Yeah. PA Semi. So long, long time listeners of the show will know that uh, we did an episode early on with Apple's 2008 purchase of PA Semi, which at the time was working on very advanced... ARM infrastructures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and developing IP for um, new chips that they didn't manufacture. They like... Fabulous semiconductor. Yep. Many, many firms these days outsource it. But it seemed not contrarian, but a little odd for Apple to be buying this sort of like researchy CPU, you know, yep. uh, company. This was right after the first iPhone had come out. Yep. Uh, people and, were confused. And they paid a bunch of money too. I mean, it was $278 million. So this isn't like some of our other ones that were like tiny little pickups. And, and Apple's market cap back then, let's just say they weren't a trillion plus dollar <laughs> company. And so, you know, this is a, a decent sized bet for them. But as we know today, the iPhone being as differentiated and, and creating as magical of an experience as it does is in many ways attributable to Apple making their own silicon, which of Absolutely. course all started with PA Semi. You also look at Apple's innovations in silicon elsewhere, so be, in their wearables division, being able yep. to do the W series chips for you know the the AirPods, AirPods and the watch. The what is the there's the W chips and then there's another oh, one. So many. There's the like H. an S le, uh, series of chips, I think. Yeah. Um, even actually, I think the touch bar has its own That's right. um, ARM CPU in it, which probably is attributable to uh, um And of course, PSMI. all the rumors are, um, you know, these have been rumors for years, but the rumors are this year, maybe, or next year, we're going to see ARM-based and even PI semi-technology-based MacBooks. Yep. So this is, this is like the hardest thing to figure out. And this is probably the most fun thing to sort of debate on this show or at least in in this format how do you account for something like this that is necessary but not sufficient to create the product line that they have today that if you look at the 
revenue contribution of the iPhone, the iPad, and the wearables division, which are all sort of made possible by Apple yes. making their own silicon. Yeah. It's $188 billion a year in revenue. So necessary, but not sufficient. So what do you do? Well, David and I took some a little bit of a hack job of, uh, of estimates here. But basically what we said is, look, you can probably say 25% of iPhone revenue is attributable to making their own silicon. Yep. I, iPhone and wearables and iPad, like that's 25% of the differentiation yep. is from the chips. 5% then, we further discounted that and said 5% of making their own silicon is attributable to their acquisition of PA Semi. So what that basically says is, well, let's take all that revenue and go grab 1% of it. Yep. And I promise we didn't come up with that 1% number. We first came up with this 25% and then that 5%. It's, we love false precision here. It is, it is false precision at its finest. Um, but that gives us a, uh, <laughs> the funniest metric of all time that, that Acquired should probably trademark, the discount adjusted current market cap contribution. Uh, Eat that community justice, EBITDA. <laughs> <laughs> And we look at that as as contributing about $11 billion uh, to Apple's market cap, which, of course, is a, a nice 36% annualized return, absolute dollar return of over $11 billion, but somehow still not making our list. Yeah, because just missing the top 10. My God, is this a gilded set of acquisitions yeah. that we've got in the top 10? All right. Should we move into the official top 10? Yes. Okay. Coming in at number 10, what... We and I have uh, sometimes referred to on the show as the best media acquisition of all time. Turns out it's not. There's going to be one that's above it coming later in the list. But Disney's 2009 acquisition of Marvel. This was just brilliant. Who would buy some defunct comic, comic book, book company? That's IP is already basically leased out to everyone and cut up 11 ways for 10 years. Totally. Well, this we're going to I'm going to talk more about this in playbook, but you know, Marvel was I can't remember exact, but sort of like going on a, you know, 70-80 year old company. It was a very old company at this point, been around forever, of course, you know, Marvel Comics, one of the pioneers of the comic industry. But Marvel Studios and Iron Man, the first film out of it, had only launched a year earlier. So it was actually pretty early in mm. this part of the market for Marvel. So Disney, of course, paid $4.2 billion to acquire all of Marvel in 2009. Which, of course, is $3 billion less than Pixar. Uh, yes, $3 billion less than Pixar. So for Marvel, we did essentially the same thing as we did with Pixar. But you'll note with Marvel as opposed to Pixar, where they're cranking out one feature-length film per year. With Marvel, they're cranking out multiple feature-length films. They're cranking out TV series. They're cranking out action figures. They're doing comic books, of course, still. All sorts of stuff. So we took their revenue since the acquisition. We did that on an annualized basis. We applied the same 2x multiple for Parks and Merch that would apply to the content revenue that they're creating. Yep. And that that um, revenue that you mentioned that that at, at the beginning there, that we are only taking their... Uh, films revenue films and revenue. multiplying That's what we had it access by three. Yep. yep, yep. So you do that, you get between six to seven billion dollars of annual revenue contribution from Marvel to Disney, out of seventy billion dollars in total revenue. Which is fascinating. So it's basically more than twice as much revenue per year from Marvel that than it is from Pixar. I mean, ten percent of Disney's revenue by this estimation coming from Marvel. It's crazy. Crazy. We and may the, not be correct on that, but like, it's a it reasonable, seems reasonable swag. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at, you know, they're, they're, I just want to do this comparison to Pixar. Like they're, they're making 
twice over twice as much money per year. They paid almost half as yeah. much for it originally, and they did it three years later. And so it's sort of this like every lever that you have uh, the ability to sort of pull and make this one a better acquisition, yeah. they did. So if you just look at the stats, we have an absolute dollar return, market cap contribution minus the price they paid for the acquisition of over $16 billion on Marvel. Incredible. Fantastic. Not quite the Incredibles, but even better than the Incredibles. <laughs> also coming in right around $16 billion of, a, of an absolute dollar return is Google's acquisition of three companies, Whereto, Keyhole, and ZipDash. The Google Maps suite. Yes, around 2004 to create the Google Maps that we know of today. Now, estimates are that Google Maps does about $3 billion in revenue. This mostly comes from the sponsored products that you see um, that are that are uh, basically the ad units that are shown on Maps. And, uh, and the Maps API revenue, I believe. That's too. right. Yep. That's right. Um, so bought for $70 billion, uh, Seven, $70 million. Sorry, bought. <laughs> gosh, the uh, orders of magnitude here. This one's a hard one to do because you just keep forgetting commas everywhere and sets of three zeros all at the same time. Bought for $70 million, doing about $3 billion in revenue uh, 16 years later. So we looked at the current market cap contribution of about $16 billion to Google's near trillion dollar market cap. That kind of pencils. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, like... Is, is I can it maybe even argue, make an argument it should be a little higher. Than 1.6% of yeah. the value of the company? Totally. Totally. So when you look at, the, similar to, to Marvel, you look at the uh, absolute dollar return. It was about $16 billion. The funny thing is, if you compare another, there's another number we sort of have here that's interesting to compare, the, the ROI multiple. So what... Uh, you know what's what's the return on uh, on the invested capital there with uh, with Marvel it was five <laughs> with Google Maps <laughs> it was two hundred and forty two yeah <laughs> this is where you know we okay we'll we'll talk about this in playbook and grading more but you know you can become a little myopic uh, as investor you focus on you know return on invested capital or cash on cash multiples or whatnot and like. You know that's nice, but like uh, it's it's paper money that you know feeds your family and pays the bills. And uh, at the end of the day, sixteen billion is sixteen billion, whether it's a two hundred and forty x you know right. ROIC or a five x ROIC. It's still sixteen billion in incremental dollars. Everything else is a vanity metric. Yep. Uh, and speaking of those vanity metrics, we are going to publish this whole table. So if you click the link in the show notes, um, you can go check out with probably some false precision, all the numbers that we came up with uh, across all of these different yeah. measures. Well, next on our list, next highest on our list. And what are we at? That was, uh, that that was, was number nine. nine. We'll so here we're, at, we're here at eight. The actual best media acquisition of all time. <laughs> we're going right back to our friends at Disney, actually ABC Capital Cities, the acquisition of ESPN 1984. Is this the oldest? This is the oldest acquisition on our list. Acquisition price of just under $200 million. ESPN currently is contributing over $10 billion in revenue to Disney through obviously advertising revenue and subscription fees uh, and including ESPN Plus in there now too. Just incredible. This, even though this acquisition happened in 1984, generated by our estimation over 30 billion dollars in absolute dollar returns 166 ROI multiple we also calculated the annualized return to just try and adjust for time here a little bit 
15% annualized return since 1984. That is just <laughs> incredible. That is like Berkshire Hathaway levels of return by an acquisition within a company. Yep. Yeah, if you found a uh, financial advisor who could figure out how to guarantee you a 15% annualized return for, what is this, 30, for, 35 well, 1984. Years? I was born in 1984 and I'm 35. There you yeah, go. Yeah, that, that would be, uh, I'd happily pay whatever they need for the <laughs> uh, cash I'll, under I'll management. I'll pay the management fees on that. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Moving on to number seven. The mafia. eBay's acquisition of PayPal in 2002. And David, as you say, the, the mafia, it is, uh, is not just for all the future value that would be created by all those founders starting every company <laughs> from Tesla to Yelp to, to LinkedIn to you name it. Wild group. Um, but actually, the value of PayPal growing inside eBay was friggin' crazy. So the way that we did this one, um, because eBay actually did spin PayPal out in full... In 2015. In 2000, I think, 15, is that right? Yeah. I think it was 15, 16, somewhere in there. This is the only one where our sort of... Uh, we have exact numbers. We do have exact numbers, and uh, we, we know an exact annualized return, and we're not pegging that to the market cap today, but rather the actual actual spin-out. So when they did spin it out, the market cap of uh, the independent PayPal entity was $47 billion. Now, in 2002, they bought the company for $1.5 billion. So no analysis needed. That was $45.6 billion of an absolute dollar return. return for eBay shareholders, a 28% annualized return. Just a unbelievable job of, uh, of picking something up relatively on the cheap, uh, both doing a nice job integrating it with PayPal to create new, dare I say, synergy value. <laughs> and uh, of course, betting on a, a trend that was internet payments and being spot, spot on there. Yeah. Now we're going to get into, start to get into some of the real fun stuff. I mean, not that all these aren't fun. The next one, this acquisition was so incredible that the company that bought it, bought this little <laughs> company back in 2005, has now fully changed its name, even though this was a large public company buying tiny, tiny little company, the company is now called the name of the little company. We're, of course, talking about Priceline's acquisition of Booking.com and Active Hotels, as we discussed about on the episode with uh, with Drew. Um, it was that those two companies together, even though Booking is was the larger at the time and is still the larger, $135 million in 2005. <laughs> uh, <laughs> booking.com, as best as we can tell, separating out what the core booking and active hotels revenue is within now the uh, it's booking holdings, booking right? Holdings. Booking it is holdings is no longer the Priceline Group, but Booking Holdings. Booking Holdings is over ten billion dollars in annual revenue contribution, and the, the, the company does about fifteen billion in revenue. At least ten point eight comes from. Uh, what they call the uh, agency revenue, which is basically Booking's original business model. There's even more. Yeah, there's has, even more in there. Uh, there. There's sort of other segments that the, of their revenue that Booking also contributes to, but we were conservative in our analysis here and basically said, let's just call Booking.com's contribution here the, the, the agency revenue. So responsible for over two-thirds of, uh, of Booking Holdings revenue now. And as David mentioned, $10, $10 billion. So that translates to a an absolute return of just under $50 billion. Here's a crazy <laughs> thing. You know, we were talking about annualized return with ESPN a minute ago, 35 years of 15% annualized return. Here we're talking about 15 years, so not 35. They got a long way to go to get to 35. You know what the annualized return on this one is? 
I'm not looking at my screen, so I don't know. 48% <laughs> annualized return compounded for 15 years. Man. Insane. That is that's a good acquisition. The other fun one about this is I think all the rest of them that we're going to mention come up very, very commonly in conversations where people say, what's the best acquisition of all time? Actually, I think number two is going to be a surprise for people. It was a surprise for me. Okay, fair. But yeah, with booking, like it's it's one that I think people don't realize. Still don't appreciate. Yeah. You know, the booking is, I haven't checked the latest market caps, but I remember back, you know, when we did the episode, booking holdings, you know, is worth roughly by market cap several multiples of Airbnb, several multiples of Expedia. I mean, Expedia is a $13 billion company right now, um, market cap. And and what's booking? And booking is 70. Now, of course, we're doing this in the middle of the coronavirus you know, outbreak. So the bookings, all travel companies, you know, market caps have been taking a big hit. But still, I don't think, particularly people in the Seattle area, don't appreciate how much larger booking is, is. Than, than Expedia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was... Uh, uh, you know, I mean, again, like it, what happened says it all. Like the company is now called Booking Holdings. Very true. Okay. The next one, number five. Next uh, is next. How come I get both of these ones? So, number five, Apple's 1997 Aqua Hire of Steve Jobs. <laughs> Greatest Aqua Hire of all time. <laughs> and all of the incredible technology that comes from next. That's the thing. It's not just Steve Jobs right. with next. Right. So, this one had to be in there, right? Because Apple is a $1.4 trillion company now that certainly would not be but for the next acquisition. So this is an, another situation where we have necessary but not sufficient. Yep. So Apple makes this move, gets Steve Jobs back. They also get the sort of new and blooming object-oriented programming, yeah. uh, the, the Objective-C language and runtime uh, next step, which turns into Mac OS X, which then gets refactored into iPhone iOS, OS, which yeah. then became iOS, which then forked to iPad OS, which then forked to Watch, Watch OS. OS. Like, yep. So for as much as we wanted to attribute value to the, the hardware from PA Semi, the software in all of Apple's, you know, everything, everything. that is Apple today... Uh, comes from next yeah it is not um don't forget gershwin and copeland and all these machinations <laughs> oh, yeah. of, of oh man copeland. machinations oh, yeah, i don't think i know that word of mac os 9 machinations sort of machinations <laughs> progressing through it was nope new thing based on next step you yeah. know don't forget they also got the cube they also got the cube they also got the cube so of course how do we how do we value this one so what we basically said so first of all the acquisition price 429 million dollars again big freaking pickup for apple you think about 1997 that that much money for them huge bet huge bet the funny thing is the company wouldn't do literally any of the revenue of the 260 billion dollars in revenue that they do today zero without that acquisition but of Look course at all their business lines all the iOS business lines, yep. iPhone, iPad, wearables, none of that. Mac, none of that. Services, none of that. Yep. Everything. Yep. Yeah. So then how do we do the math here? <laughs> so what we basically just kind of like squinted at is we said that the discount for future dependency, so this discount that we apply where we're basically saying what percentage of the the product that ships today came from outside the assets acquired we're going to say it's about 95% that yeah, necessary, but 
far, 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 95% from sufficient. And so we take a 95% discount on Apple's current uh, market cap today. Now here's the crazy thing. Oh, what's 5% of Apple's market cap? Some <laughs> tiny number, $63 billion. <laughs> <laughs> Providing us with an absolute dollar return of 62 and a half billion dollars that are very squinty math here but honestly it's it's hard to come up with something better would yield for uh, apple buying next yeah okay number four just a hair's width outside of our top three but absolutely just this is well, well we'll get to we'll reveal what it is this is going to win the prize for uh roi multiple here by a long, long shot. We are talking about Google's 2005 acquisition of Android for $50 million. <laughs> Which one of, the re- one of the things this points to is how you can get these gigantic multiples from early stage investing. Yeah. I mean, when, when you say this one wins the award for ROI multiple, what I really hear is must have been a really cheap pickup price. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. Exactly. But again, like you can't eat ROI multiple. Uh, so that's why this is number four and not uh, number three, two or one. But still a monster. Okay. Android, $50 million to buy this thing. We tried to think about how do you account for what Android's <laughs> current revenue contribution is to and, Google. And of course, Google is not helpful to us at all in this segment <laughs> that when they report Android revenue, they report the search revenue that is generated from people searching on Android phones, which is right. like not not really how you'd want to do this. You you really want to think about like Yeah, that's Google search revenue. Yeah, that, that's those not like Android. Google revenue. searches were going to happen somewhere anyway whether yeah. they had, you know, the Android or, Android or, or not. not. So how should we think about this? Well, there's one there's one piece of the revenue that is actually the much much easier part which is Google Play Store revenue. Yep. That is fully attributable to Android. That was going to happen, you know, like the, there's no there's no sharing of that. It's like no Android, no Google Play Store. Yep. Exactly. The other component, which is a little bit harder to, to sort of squint at, is what we call traffic acquisition costs. So it is reported that Google currently pays Apple about $9 billion a year in order to keep Google as the default search engine on the iPhone. That is an insane, insane number in, in their cost structure. And so one big thing that we sort of determined on the episode with Android, in addition to the Play Store, how should you think about the value of Google creating Android in-house? You should think about it as money they don't have to pay anyone else for that traffic. Because if they own the operating system, then they can for free keep Google as the default search engine. And so the way that that we went about that is we compared the amount of money that is spent on the iPhone through you know the the, the App Store to the amount of money sort that of is purchase intent that exactly. would be monetizable search traffic exactly uh, to the amount of money that is um, spent on Google's Play Store. Apple makes about twice as much money as Google does on the App Store versus the Play Store, uh, which kind of gives us a sense of there's if there, if you think about gross purchase intent or basically the value of the traffic on iPhones, it's about twice as much as the value of the traffic uh, on Android phones. And so that's sort of how we backed into let's add another four and a half billion dollars in quote revenue per year to Google for uh, for owning yeah. Android because it's basically costs they don't have to pay to to anyone else yeah so now here's the here's the surprising thing to me though the total number that we come up with revenue contribution for android is uh right around 13 billion right uh yep 13 and a half 13 and a half billion so four and a half that were, of that word attributing by our you know flawed methodology here flawed in some way we don't know way to search 
I didn't realize this. There's so much revenue in the Play Store. Like it's so big now, even yeah. though the iOS app store monetizes more and is, you know, worth more. Google is going to do, uh, by estimates, Google did about just under $30 billion in total gross merchandise value in the Play Store last year in 2019. They take a 30% cut of that. You know, we're under slightly under $10 billion in, you know, super high margin revenue to uh to google basically infinite revenue infinite margin revenue to google that's incredible yep yep yeah listeners uh would love to hear your thoughts if you have a better way of thinking about google's sort of revenue contribution we fully recognize that this this cost saving is different than revenue we also fully recognize that taking a ratio of the app store's earnings and sort of using that as a ratio of um, traffic acquisition costs we may be vastly underestimating search value here it's true Um, and of course the nine billion number that they pay to apple is not a google disclosed number that is a reported number Um, and so uh yeah would would love to have more conversation around that so we net out all this when you current market cap contribution taking out the 50 million dollar acquisition price of 77.68 billion dollars in absolute return on this acquisition of Android, which represents an ROI multiple of 1,555x compared to a 5x for Marvel. <laughs> and, a, and a nice little annualized return of 63%. Oof, man. 63% over 15 years. Not now, of course, that's bad. not hard cash like uh, booking, which is the uh, 48% annualized of like, yep, that's like, you can take that to the bank. Yep. Um, but still, got to rank this one super high. All right. Well, our Google streak continues. Oh, it's going to continue for a little while here. Number three, Google's 2006 acquisition of YouTube, which uh, I think the acquired podcast called this a C when they Who, did that episode. Those guys, those guys are morons. Yeah, they definitely need to revisit this one. They definitely need to revisit. Let's consider this, this one. a primer on our on our revisit. So big acquisition price i mean this is a 1.65 billion dollar acquisition and in 2006 for a year old company for a year old company that was basically incubated inside sequoia yeah so actually is i believe still to this day the only publicly available sequoia investment memo out there because of course it was uh, part of discovery in the youtube viacom lawsuit yep Uh, We'll link that in the show notes. If you're listening to this show and you find this interesting, you will like love geeking out over this investment memo. It's awesome. I think this was Ruloff's first investment at Sequoia. I mean, it's real. It's like remarkably cogent for someone's first successful investment memo. Yeah, you know, it's better to be lucky than good. (laughs) (laughs) He's good too. So Google finally did us a favor and broke out YouTube and its most recent earnings, a fast-growing revenue segment of $15 billion a year. I've got lots of comments on this, but I'm going to hold it for our uh, playbook section. Where we're going to do a little more analysis. But you look at the acquisition price of $1.65 billion, now doing $15 billion in revenue. Google total is doing about $160 billion in revenue. So that comes to a market cap uh, of... Uh, contribution. Uh, market cap contribution to Google's trillion dollars of 86 billion dollars in market cap contribution for youtube which of course then is an 84 billion dollar absolute return on google's uh, cash we're just getting into silly numbers at this point (laughs) yeah if you can get a 52x roi multiple on a billion and a half dollar investment you're doing pretty good doing pretty good there's lots more i want to say here we'll we'll hold this one for for (laughs) the, the end of the show but um 
All right. Here, number two. I was shocked by this. I'm just shocked. We have not covered this as an episode. I mean, listeners, you're listening along. What would you think number two is going to be? This is not what you think it's going to be. And you probably know what number one is going to be based on the number of times we reference it. So <laughs> like, the show. what so, is two? Yeah, what is two? Okay, so big caveat here. We haven't done this episode. We need to dig in more. This is This episode is like coming right up to the top of the list now of like, we need to do the work here. Another Google acquisition. And, and, and let's pause. It's another Google acquisition. So listeners, take, take five seconds and think about like, what else did Google buy? 2008. That's when it happened. Double click. Man, I was like, Ben, when you first put this on like the first draft of our list, and I was like, double click, come on. No, like that's not like, yeah, I mean, there's revenue and stuff in there, but like a bunch of that was already in Google and then they did other stuff. And so we almost took it off the list. You know, and then we went and we actually like dug in a little bit and we're like, wow, no, double click contributes, uh, the former double click assets now contribute a massive amount of revenue to Google. You know, Google Ad Manager, uh, that business line and the business unit that it's within, which is almost all double click and AdMob. They acquired AdMob uh, in when was that? 2012? Maybe? Somewhere in there for Somewhere uh, 750, 750 million dollars. So you put those two together. That's about $22 billion of revenue within Google today. Now, obviously, that's not search revenue. That's like display revenue. Right. But yeah. L- that's l- revenue. Listeners, the way to think about this is uh, of of the sort of two big Google ad segments, um, and we're excluding YouTube here, and there's the stuff they own. So there's search engine ads that come up, and that used to be called AdWords. It may still actually be called AdWords. I think they just changed it to Google Ads. Google Ads, okay. And that's the larger segment. And then there's this other still very large segment that's the stuff they don't own. So the the ads that they're showing on other people's websites, which used to be called AdSense. Yeah. And that predates the the DoubleClick acquisition. And that's why initially I thought like, oh yeah, AdSense has been around forever. That wasn't DoubleClick. But AdSense, that product line is actually quite small these days almost all of what is in uh what do they call it now it's like google network um ads or something like yeah google network advertising maybe something like that almost all of it is double click and ad mob it's wild and so of course this requires a, a much more nuanced understanding of sort of the digital ad serving ecosystem and you know understanding double click for publishers and understanding what's an ad network versus you know double clicks is it a DSP? A, a well, there's like, yeah, there's a double click for publishers and then there's double click for advertisers. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I believe, again, we're not ad tech experts, but I, I believe that's like the standard, you know, rails that all kind of third party ad tech runs on these days. Yep. I know. I know every publisher for sure still has DFP as the sort of main container that all the all the ad networks plug into yeah. on their site. So. The TLDR on this one is they created an unbelievable amount of value. It's still a massively value created for Google, and and we're excited to do an episode on it. Yeah. So they bought it for three point one billion dollars in two thousand eight. Current revenue contribution of uh, of this segment within Google is just a hair under twenty two billion dollars. Multiply that out by the market cap, uh, and you get a hundred and twenty six billion dollars in market cap contribution. Net out the acquisition price, $123 billion of value creation. You know, anyone should be trepidatious spending $3 billion. But when you have any sort of uh, guess that $103 billion could pop out the other end, or I guess $126 billion could pop out the other end, have a little more faith. All right. Well, number one on our list. No surprises here. The king. The king. The goat. 
So after three Googles in a row, we have Facebook buying Instagram. In 2012, they bought it for a billion dollars. Recent estimates say that there's about $20 billion in revenue that comes from advertisers going into the very same portal on Facebook that they used to buy Facebook ads and instead buying Instagram ads. Or in addition, probably most often. Yep. So Facebook's current market cap, around $540 billion. They do about $70 billion in revenue. So 20 of this 70 comes from Instagram. Man, that's nuts. Two-sevenths of Facebook's revenue is Instagram. Yep. So uh, not ridiculous to say that they contribute somewhere around $150 billion to Facebook's current market cap, which, you know, let's just round and say somewhere around $150 billion in absolute value return. Nuts. Yeah. And you think about how recent that was too, 2012. That puts it at an 88% annualized return for yeah. Facebook. So on our whole list, this is the highest annualized return. Now, only eight years, but still eight years of annualized return of 88%. Wow, eighty-eight percent compounded annualized return. It, it, it's There's funny. nothing more to say. These percentages really force you to understand for for folks who aren't used to looking at like IRRs or yeah. um, you know annualized returns. Like it, it, you'll notice like even the best one isn't a hundred percent, and yeah. so it really forces you to to sort of like. Uh, think exponentially think exponentially which humans are bad at yeah well it's um you know there's the warren buffett and charlie munger requote of i believe it was albert einstein that said compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world <laughs> like if you can compound something at 88 percent per year for even just eight years you get the greatest acquisition of all time it's true so we're going to do a little bit of a modified version here of acquisition category so, David, how are you thinking about this? So, I went through our top 10. So, only the top 10 that qualify. Um, and I categorized for me, this may be slightly different than what we did on the episodes of the show, maybe different than what you think. Each I categorized each real quick. So, Instagram as a business line, double-click business line, YouTube business line, Android product. Next, people plus technology, booking.com business line, PayPal business line, ESPN business line, the Google Maps suite, I said product, mm -hmm. and then Marvel business line. So, of that... We have two products, one people plus technology and all the other seven business lines for me. Wow. You agree? Yeah. I would not change a single categorization there. Did you call Instagram a product or did you call it a business I line? I called it a business line. That's it, maybe It was not generating debatable. revenue when they bought it. I think it's a product yeah. that plugs into Facebook's existing business line. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's debatable on that one. I, I could see that. That kind of straddles the line. Yeah. Because we define business line as like it, it is a, if not sustainable, then having a path to sustainability business on its own, yeah. right? Yeah. So like booking.com, of course. <laughs> ESPN, of course. Yeah. Um, YouTube, of course. Uh, was, YouTube, was YouTube generating ad revenue when they sold? I guess that's not that important. No, but but it's like it's pretty stale. Like YouTube in, in is, the same way that Instagram would have implemented some yeah, sort of right, ad product. Yeah, would have, yeah. Um, um, wouldn't have been successful as successful because it wouldn't have been aggregated on the back end with all of either Google's existing advertisers or Facebook's existing advertisers right. in either of those Whereas cases. Whereas I think like Android is definitely a product because you know Android got integrated into so much. What are they going to Windows style sell yeah, licenses to right, the OS? Right. Like yeah. it wouldn't have worked. There's no way Android's business model could have existed except within Google. And, and same with the suite of Google Maps acquisitions. Right. Like that was not <laughs> where to was not going to build. Uh, th they were building Google Maps, so they weren't going to build the business of Google Maps. Right. 
it's funny like i i so i generally agree with your thesis that the dominant tech theme here is uh is business line acquisitions and if you had asked me 100 episodes ago or 110 you know when we started the show like what what do you think your takeaways might be and i think we had this categorization thing within the first few episodes yep. i don't think i would have told you that the m- most successful ones would be the business line acquisitions. yeah well it kind of makes me think it's kind of a uh, justification for venture capital for me right like because kind of you could maybe make an argument that what these some of these super super successful acquisitions that our business lines are is just like oh well the parent company at the bottom is kind of like a venture capitalist like they funded google funded youtube for a long time and youtube turned out to be an amazing business and it's a separate kind of standalone business you could say the same thing about instagram i think probably zuck and facebook you know we'll talk about uh in just a sec about acquisition philosophies of different companies i think that's kind of how they think about things like uh, you know the, like the facebook quote-unquote style acquisition of we're gonna buy you and we're gonna leave you alone well it's kind of like what it would be like if you're operating as a standalone venture-backed company yep it's a great point you know it's funny as you talk about the companies that show up here uh and then we're drifting into playbook and and themes here a little bit notably missing is amazon yeah nowhere in the top 15 i mean you've yeah. got microsoft google facebook apple yep you don't have Amazon. Yeah. Well, it's, okay, let's talk about this. So the other thing I wanted to talk about in, in category section is use this to talk about the acquirers. Let, let's talk about each of these. So maybe can we start with Google? Google has four of the top 10. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, I mean, people know, like, I think, yeah, Google's like, you know, well, right. Like, this is, Google has the best M&A track record in history right like yep four of the top 10 and three of the top four (laughs) uh that's pretty good and they were in a bidding war for that for instagram so that's right that's right could have been four of four it could have been it could have been four of the top four and five of the top 10 you know if you think about google you know maybe eric schmidt i can see this but like larry and sergey you don't like they don't scream like m&a genius to to me (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I was tempted to blame it on the sort of M&A spree that they were on in the sort of like late uh, just, 2000s, You get enough shots on goal, you're going to hit some winners? Yeah, but like those ended up being the sort of like 20 to $100 million pickups yeah. they were doing. It was a bunch of YC companies, it was a bunch of Google alums. And those like, were acquirers. They were just buying yeah, employees. Like these were bets. I mean, if you look at $1.65 billion, you look at $3 billion, like these yeah. are these are big strategic yeah. bets that they were making out of the company, you know, in what, 2005 and six. It, it's not like I mean, how much was Google worth in 2006? One point six billion was very real money. I remember then. my investment banking interview. Uh, one of my interviews uh, was the Google YouTube acquisition had just happened. And the question was, what do you think about this? And I remember saying like, oh, man, they spent so much money. This seems crazy. Yeah. Well, here, okay, here's my sort of thesis on it is when you say like Larry and Sergey don't strike me as M&A geniuses. Obviously, Eric Schmidt was very active in the company at yep. this point. Was he CEO? He was or, CEO yeah. during all of these acquisitions, I think. So, you know, very seasoned executive there, technology executive. But the way I sort of think about Google is at their founding, they were tech geniuses. Yep. They figured out something very disruptive, but didn't really realize it. They didn't know what to use it for. This sort took of like, them, As Doug Leone said, it took them a couple of years to figure out. They knew they had something, yeah. but exactly what it was, 
they didn't know. And they kind of fell backward into a business model. I mean, yeah. they, they kind of like realized that, oh my gosh, this thing that we're doing by having the fastest and most accurate search results with the lowest cost structure because of our distributed compute infrastructure, like, oh my God, we can do that thing that Overture is doing and, yeah. and have incredibly high margin, incredibly defensible revenue. Yeah. Oh, okay, I guess we'll start yeah, doing they that. they didn't invent that. But then I think the thing that they did realize was the power of that and then like uh, I think it's a billions quote that Bobby Axelrod says when you when you have an advantage press it yeah and it's I yeah. think they they became very good at figuring out uh, hey how do we leverage our existing strategic position to just widen the moat and create more business lines or yeah. or create things that just add tremendous high margin revenue to our existing business lines here's here's something interesting though like all of these fantastic acquisitions happened 10 to 15 years ago for Google. Now, you could argue, as we said at the top of the show, we're not going to include recent acquisitions in this because it's too early to tell. So maybe Google has made some recent acquisitions that are going to turn into this, but I kind of don't think so. I think two Mm. things happened to Google, maybe three things, in the period after when they were making these incredible acquisitions. One, Facebook showed up and started making some of these acquisitions. So like, whereas before <laughs> Google was kind of the only scale tech yeah. acquirer. Now all of a sudden Facebook's on the and scene. there's tons of alumni at Facebook from Google. I mean, they, right. the whole Facebook ads team was the original Google right. ads team. You mean Cheryl moving over. Yep, yep. So Facebook gets Instagram. Facebook gets WhatsApp. You know, Facebook gets Oculus, which obviously, of course, is not on this list. But like, you know, it was a big bet to make. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you should be making these bets. It's like takeaway here. Playbook, you know, <laughs> newsflash, make these bets. Two, though, maybe in response to that, Google starts shifting to this strategy of like, oh, we're going to build stuff in-house with like Google X and whatnot. And I just don't think that works as well. Oh, that's a good point. Um, you know, I see sort of the rationale, but like the incentives are wrong. You know, if you're an entrepreneur and you're going to build a company, you're like going to be all in and aligned. If you're making a Google salary and you're building a company, it's not... It's it just doesn't work the I same mean, we, way. We sit here the day after Waymo finally took external capital. Like, right, right. I mean, maybe Waymo will become this, but like, anyway, that's two. And then I think three related to both of these was the leadership change at Google. You know, Eric Schmidt steps back, Larry Page becomes CEO. Kind of what I was saying, Larry and Sergey, both like incredible entrepreneurs, incredibly, you know, stewardship of Google and everything. But this isn't their MO, you know, making these acquisitions. Yeah. Yeah. Google X is in very, I mean, I don't know as much lore around the founding of Google X, but it does strike me as trying to recreate the conditions upon which Larry and Sergey invented Google. Google search. Yeah. I'm sure there's many business school professors who study this professionally, but it strikes me that you can kind of do that once. And then when you hit your tipping point and what you need to do is grow and defend, M&A is a, a much more a high likelihood of hit rate strategy yeah. than trying to replicate those initial conditions. Which brings us to, I think, the next company to talk about, which is Facebook. Yep. Yeah. So I thought coming into this that my takeaway would be that Facebook is the greatest acquirer of all time. Well, they got number one yeah. locked and, down. And ultimately, the value from number one uh, over, like, as it continues forward in the future may actually prove that. Uh, nothing else matters. And Power then, law. Yeah. <laughs> Number one beats two through 10 combined. Yep. Maybe, maybe. Um, but at the end of the day, there's two very different, like holding my comments about online advertising, there's two very different modalities of sort of this traffic. There's intent-based and then non-intent-based, or I don't know what you call Facebook, but 
mess around in your free time. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. They both serve an incredibly different and incredibly powerful purpose, and they haven't really stepped on each other yet. Mm-hmm. Like they've tried in different ways. Google Plus tried, and actually, Facebook hasn't launched a search engine, even though they index most of the web, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Interesting. I do think both of those will continue as independent enduring juggernauts because they serve very different purposes for the types of advertising that they serve people and the moment in which they catch them. Yep. Yep. It's interesting to think about, like, you know, Facebook is, we were just talking about Google in this era of this incredible era and then sort of seeding that definitely not intentionally to Facebook, but Facebook is also kind of like they haven't made acquisitions like this in quite a while. I wonder if that's because the venture capital industry is so has been so robust over the past few years, like where it used to be like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, Facebook wants to buy you for a billion dollars, a couple billion dollars, $20 billion. We have a small dollars. fund. That sounds great to us. Now you can raise money at $10 billion valuation. So yeah, it's a great point. Yeah. Interesting. One of my big tech themes is like, oh, my gosh, these have all happened largely in the last 20 to 25 years. And based on your comment there, may be the case that there was a 20 to 25 year window where the best M&A of all time existed. Yep. And if this ability to, to both stay private longer and raise huge amounts of capital, and there are people with huge funds to support you to do that, or as you said, robust venture capital infrastructure, like maybe we don't see this kind of thing as much anymore because if YouTube was started five years ago, Actually, what would happen is Google it would it. be a competitor yeah. to Facebook Facebook at this point. And it would yeah. be a large independent company. I mean, TikTok yeah. is the sort of what would have happened otherwise if if uh, YouTube yeah. was 10 years well, later. Well, now that's... So it's, I was going to say that it's both of what would have happened. It's it's two it's a counterfactual and a counterfactual. The counterfactual is in that they bought <laughs> Musical.ly. Musical.ly is too early to tell if that's going to make the list. But it could. There's a world in which it could. And that's a recent acquisition. Super. I, I'm, it makes me very glad that we broadened, acquired from just acquisitions to, you know, first IPOs and now just great technology companies. Because, yeah, this the era of these type of acquisitions may be, it's never going to be over, but like that that fertile window from, you know, 2005 to 2012, I don't think it's going to come again. Yeah. Like you needed the right overlap of a technology wave and a capital wave. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about the technology wave is these are all internet companies. And so you alluded to this at the beginning where you said, hey, we are going to cover non-tech companies too. And we're thinking with a lens of covering non-tech companies. But when you think about it, it, software being distributed over the internet. Zero marginal cost. Yeah. like, Like holding my comments about YouTube, like you look at Instagram's gross margins, right? Like they don't have to pay anything for the content. The advertisers are all aggregated anyway from their big stable with Facebook and even more people coming for the combined Facebook and Instagram. And the bandwidth cost to serve it out to the billion plus users on the platform now. Not zero, but not zero, but much, much lower than, you know, the, the revenue that they're generating off of this. So they're, well, they're, it's not just it's not just um, cost structure, but it's also I think even maybe even more important in why, at least by our you know bias lens, we kind of only had tech and a few media companies in here, is just the ability to scale. If you're making widgets, you can't go from a, great a million people buying your widgets to one out of every two people in the world buying your widgets within ten years. Unless you just can't do that. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, unless you're Apple, I guess. 
Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. So there's there's a margin, there's there's scale, and there's defensibility that yeah. all sort of come. I mean, yeah. you're you're not going to unseat Instagram at this point. Yeah, try a snap might. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Let's go run through quick the other big tech companies. So Apple's on this list, mm-hmm. but it's interesting. Apple's just whole approach and MO to this is so different. You know, they make hardware, right? Like Apple they make, buys they buy components, technology, small technology companies from, from time, time to, to time. time is always their comment. We thought about that as a name for the show originally. That's right. right. <laughs> uh, Glad, Glad we, we didn't, didn't do, do that. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Microsoft. What do we think? So they have none in the top 10. Uh, we've got Bungie as an honorable mention. Yep. Microsoft famously bungled M&A for most of the Balmer era. Yeah. Which is interesting given they had such a robust team. They had probably a bigger, more robust team than... I, than I think but maybe it, they overthought things. It's a couple things. Well, actually, they all stem from the same thing. It's Microsoft's culture. Mm. Either the not invented here syndrome just mm. crushed anything that came in to the point where they weren't going to play nice. Right. Or... Microsoft bought Aquaniv. Like, at the same time, Google bought DoubleClick. And like... Yep. I mean, that's the counterfactual. Yeah. Or the crony culture or the cronyism that emerged from the, the the culture there, people would make these acquisitions for political reasons mm. within the organization and then refer to point one for wouldn't end up playing nice when they tried to get integrated. Yeah. And I think, frankly, like for as dominant as Microsoft was and as much as the culture helped them get to that position, I think it was pretty value destructive for being able to grow meaningfully through M&A. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Under Satya now with the new Microsoft, obviously Microsoft is 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 Microsoft the current currently the largest company in the world by market cap. It's up there, yeah. I, don't know. I think they may be above Apple. I now. do know that their stock went up fifty percent between December thirtieth, twenty eighteen, and twenty nineteen. <sighs> 
Wow. So obviously, Satya is doing an incredible job leading the company. It would be interesting, given we were just saying, the era of the, the great golden age of M&A may be over. If it weren't over, though, would Microsoft and can Microsoft, even in this era, make some... some... I mean, you look at, like, what, Minecraft... Yeah, uh, yeah. What else have they bought in the last few well, years? Well, they bought LinkedIn, of course. LinkedIn. LinkedIn's never going to qualify because it was already so large. So like large. so much of the value had already been created. Yep. Which uh, to your point, like this sort of like robust capital environment. Be- Although yeah. LinkedIn was the same era of as Facebook. It was, so but, they we went, but they they went public. They were, LinkedIn went public right before Facebook. And they were kind of the first, there was a huge drought of tech IPOs after the financial crisis. And LinkedIn yeah. kind of broke the logjam. Um, anyway. The only other one I want to mention, you know, that we have to, Disney got two of the top 10 media company, you know? Yeah. So I've had this like blog post that I've wanted to write for a long time that might be just better as an LP show, but what is the same and what is different between content and software? Yeah. Because both are, I mean, if you look at software, it's really just content. Like it's, I mean, it executes. Yeah, it is. It's content. But it's copyrightable, you know, it's words-ish. And it's a set of instructions that is processed by some brain, just like, an essay is and so it has the same characteristic where you create it once and then you can create an infinite number of copies so zero marginal costs this era it has basically the same distribution costs as software does Mm -hmm. putting 4k video out there obviously is a little bit more expensive to host and uh and distribute youtube than uh other forms of you know than than sas for example so there's like these things that are the same but then the things that are different are like you have to create the constant next thing yeah. in content in the way that you yeah. don't in software. Yeah. I mean, you need to maintain it and stuff, but like, right, right. like when was we the last to... time Slack added a new feature that was meaningful to your life? Right, Never. Right. But like, if Whereas we go three weeks without making an episode and we start getting like oh, real it's, antsy. <laughs> it's nothing. It's like uh, what Doug Leone say, like w- without, uh, uh, without the got... next great investment, we just got the chickens 20, in the 20 back. chickens running in the, <laughs> in the back. And that's how it feels. I mean, that's the difference between... We gotta that line more often. That's a really good line. Totally. I mean, it's the difference between sort of building an enduring thing that has a snowball effect and grows over time versus, you know, having to start from square one each time. Yeah. So to me, it's like the reason why these content things are on here is because they have zero marginal and low distribution costs. So they can sort of have this high gross margin characteristic um, where you sink a ton of money into making it. And then you can amortize that over tons and tons and tons and tons of people. But the reason why they're not in the top, you know, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. Is, and the reason why Pixar didn't make the top 10 is because it's all about your next hit. That's so funny. And like, uh, uh, just riffing on this for a minute, Pixar didn't make the top 10. Marvel and ESPN did. Marvel and ESPN are more predictable and repeatable than, you know, Pixar is dependent on the brain trust coming up with something great every year. Yeah. And sometimes they don't. Whereas, you know, yes, but for like sports are going to get played every <laughs> every day of every year. That's true. The content kind of creates itself too. And with to Marvel, like the depth of the bench and existing library is like, yeah, you got to make good content. The movie's got to be good and whatnot. But like... You're taking a lot less risk than you are on like, okay, brain trust, go make me something good, you know? Yep. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Okay. Playbook? Yeah. Can we talk about the fact that the top three are all online advertising? Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> I have This is my uh, what I think you're going to say is also my number one theme here. Yeah. I mean, there's a few different ways to attack this. One is a defensibility perspective. 
which I think is interesting. Like once you already have all the advertisers and you already have all the users, it's a far cry to ever break that that bond that's created. And and so the other side of that coin is being anti-competitive. So, you know, the the fact that our top 3 are all online advertising network effect businesses that were bought by other online advertising network effect businesses, like that may pay some credence to the drum that Ben Thompson has been yeah. beating around do we need a new regulatory new framework antitrust, for the internet? Yeah, regulation. Yeah. So, hugely hugely value created for the companies that bought them open question of whether it's net positive for the world for this combination to exist yeah what other angles do you have on, on well, it's so my angle on this i agree totally with everything you said my angle on this though certainly for this insight that the top three are all online advertising markets but also the whole list and and all the honorable mentions this comes back to me like this is another beat yourself over the head with a hammer moment of like you want to build a big company, target a big market, you know, like you're not going to build a big company if you don't target a big market, you know, and there's lots of big markets out there, but, but this top three all being online advertising, you know, like think about it for a minute. Online advertising is probably the biggest market in the history of markets. So, so it's interesting. Advertising all up, at least in the U S consistently tracks as 1% of GDP. Yeah. Now, okay, you could argue that um, residential real estate is larger. I'd buy that argument. But those two, I can't think of anything bigger because it, like advertising and online advertising, like you're taking a, a, a VIG on everything that is sold. Yeah, all you, you of basically commerce. get a VIG on the economy. You're getting a VIG on the economy. Yep. And, um, and so like it's so big that it can support the three biggest acquisitions of all time. I think, yeah, I don't know if you should say it's the, like if you look at household consumer spend there's like a big chunk i think like 30 percent is like their housing and then like 10 to 20 percent is their car and like 10 to 20 percent is food so like i i guess the what i would think about all of those even housing advertising right zillow yeah but i guess the point i'm making is like maybe it's the single largest high margin addressable market by a number of consumers perspective but from an absolute dollars perspective i bet those other markets are are larger the only difference being one you actually have to do the hard stuff like yeah. bringing making the food bringing the food whatever yep. it is cars you know making margins car, <laughs> margins um segments like yep. online advertising knows no segments yeah everybody you can Googles. Hit everything everybody has a social network account it's, yep. it's crazy um and and ease of scale yeah so yep. like I don't think the amount of revenue available in online advertising compares to the on the amount of revenue available in residential real estate. However, the reason the these market caps, natures, yeah, the yeah. reason these market caps are the way that they are, and the reason these multiples are the way that they are, is gross margin, yep. lack of segmentation, and ability to scale. growth characteristics. Yep. Now, what we're talking about at the end of this episode, with you know, in our clips with Hamilton, as we talked about in the whole episode with him the mistake that VCs always make is you only look at market size. That's only one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is your ability to create defensibility within that market. Yep. And we haven't talked about that on this episode. This is not the time and place for it. But um, you know, all of the top companies on this list were able to do that. The other two quick kind of sub-bullets of that that I want to say are one, if you look at all these acquisitions on the list with a couple notable exceptions, DoubleClick being a really notable one, these acquisitions were done 
early in that mar- particular market's development mm. uh, in the life cycle of the market. And, um, you know, Hamilton also talks about this. Like, it's the the growth phase of a market. That's when you can create power. You can create defensibility. If you wait too long, you can enter markets later, but you're never going to dominate a market uh, mm. if you enter later. Now, DoubleClick is interesting in that Google bought that in 2008. I think DoubleClick was founded in 1995. Um, so that was... that. But you could argue that was an evolution of the market. Anyway, and then my other sub-bullet is like... If this, if you're big game hunting, you know, if you're big elephant <laughs> hunting, uh, price doesn't matter. You know, bring a big gun. You can spend 1.65 billion for YouTube and like still end up number three on the list. All right, David. So in this <laughs> final section, most commonly known as grading in every other episode, we're going to use this to sort of talk about things we, we might want to adjust in this yeah. list. Acquired adjusted ranking. Acquired adjusted ranking. And we're not going to actually change the rankings at all, but the, there's some things like you can't serve all masters and there's some masters we didn't serve, namely profit contribution, yep. um, you know, gross margin, strategic value yep. that that deserve to be talked about here. Like WhatsApp. And so the, this is sort of our opportunity, I think, in, in, in this to grade. Are there entries on this list that we're like, I, you know, maybe that should be higher or lower? Yeah. First, let's just talk about how unbelievable Instagram is again. So Instagram... Can we make it higher than number one? The, the, there's a defensibility amazingness to it that, that I think gets harped on over and over and over again. There's another thing that is they don't pay the creators <laughs> for the content on it. Like yeah. Instagram generates $20 billion in revenue from content that they get for free. It's incredible. Yeah. It is like, and the content is like. What's interesting, you know, we're, we're going to talk about YouTube in a sec. They got to pay for the content. They got to pay the creators. Then you look at like Facebook. You're like, oh, Facebook gets their content for free. But the nature of the content on Instagram is like super high. Like it's art. Like there's there's high. Like that content has value. Yep. Whereas like the Facebook content does that have value? If it does, you know, like me typing out a status update, you know, like whatnot. You've like, been on Facebook in a while. It's kind of the same as Instagram. It's videos. Oh, is it? It's, it's yeah, photos, well, I don't yeah. think I've been on Facebook. And, but like, like, you know, professional photographers and brands yeah. and people creating incredibly free. Yeah, highly produced content. Yeah. That they could, you, you could go spend a million dollars to make a film that you release on Instagram for free. Like crazy. Crazy. A million might be high, 100,000. So then compare that against YouTube where... Of course, they pay something like half of their revenue out to creators. Yep. So when Google says we generated $15 billion in, in revenue in our half YouTube segment right last year, it's like, I would, there's an argument about if that's even revenue. Yeah. And, and like, they, they chose to report it as revenue and have a higher revenue, lower gross margin percentage business line there rather than, I think what you could have done is said, you know, we have seven, eight billion in revenue GMV here. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. That is what it is. It also, YouTube is serving 4K content. And yeah. so their bandwidth, bandwidth and hosting costs got to be, I don't know, at least meaningful. Three, three-ish billion dollars. And YouTube's, I'm sure, I'm, or uh, Instagram's, I'm sure, are high too. But you think about the, the level of compression that people are totally happy with on, uh, on uh, mobile screen. On mobile screens. Yeah. And the fact that like, oh, they haven't released an iPad app. I yeah. feels, of course, like they're, they're, they're resource constrained, but like, gosh, you, you might want much higher quality stuff yeah. if you're having it shipped down to a, you know, Retina iPad Pro. And yeah. so I guess the, the macro point here is I think it's always worth comparing two similar companies like this, YouTube and Instagram. Instagram doesn't pay for a lick of their content. YouTube has half their, their revenue going out the door. And I think 
probably significantly higher hosting and bandwidth costs. Yeah. It's important to know too, like we, we're not going to do value creation, value capture on this episode, but they're like a bunch of, we're, we're not talking about like what's good for the world, what's not good for the world, like all this stuff. And I think a lot of arguments that Instagram is like bad for the world and like how it is right now. But purely as a shareholder from a like investor economic perspective, if I could hold shares in Instagram versus YouTube, I would put all of all 100% of my dollars between those two into Instagram and zero into YouTube, even though I love YouTube. Burn. Well, it's just like Instagram is just, T- totally. It's everything we were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that's worth talking about YouTube now that we've denigrated it is it is th- is talk about the strategic value, which yeah. we didn't talk about anywhere in here. Yep. So YouTube is the second most, I think this is still true, the second highest trafficked search engine in the world. Yeah. And they're owned by the highest Best trafficked thing. search yeah. engine in the world. And so it is worth in the same way that with WhatsApp, we said, was it worth Google, uh, was it worth Facebook, Facebook yeah. paying 20% of their value to go and yeah. make sure that their core isn't threatened? It's it's hard to put a price on Google owning, also owning the second most valuable search engine in the world. Yep. So, the, you know, I think it deserves to be up there probably for that reason alone, albeit that's not how we made this list. Yep. Another one that I want to discuss here. And again, we're a little bit out of school because we haven't done the episode on it yet and we absolutely need to, is VMware. Like the only reason VMware is as low as it is is because of this crazy thing going on with EMC and (laughs) Dell right now. Like to acquire 80% of VMware for $625 million, like, (laughs) uh, man, if I could go do that again, I would go like mortgage, you know, my house a million times over to do that. Like, it turned out virtual machines were a thing. thing. (laughs) And, and, And also reflects all the playbook we were talking about. Like, early in a big market Mm -hmm. like also interesting that it's the i believe yeah it's the only kind of enterprise company on this list oh that's interesting when you're talking about attacking big markets i thought that was a direction you were going to go earlier of like consumer is a big market yeah yeah double click is arguably uh, but but it's it's serving the end customer is consumers right and like it kind of makes sense that the biggest companies would be consumer companies because the consumers businesses serve pay, consumers you know you that you pay retail price for something and then there's 11 businesses that are chopping yep. up all the revenue that you gave to the retailer along the way to power the back end of the retailer and that all has to add up to less than what you bought it for yep. otherwise you know so they're losing the retailers losing money and so it sort of makes sense that like the biggest companies would be consumer companies and the most successful acquisitions would be consumer acquisitions makes sense but yeah, that, yeah. I had, we didn't point that out before. Do you want to make your uh, Pixar uh, apology statement? Not not apology, but uh, your uh, apology not in that you're sorry, but like a justification for Pixar here? Of why it's uh, all the way down at 14? Oh, why, why, why it's worth more than, oh, we okay. say, than we say it is. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a... That's right. We talked about this last night. So Pixar, a thing that we didn't do is also count the Disney animations value that it created. Of course, and revitalization of the whole company. Totally. Like, I think what's the phrase from the Iger book? So with animation goes the company. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jeffrey Katzenberg did an incredible job with Aladdin and what Beauty and the Beast and Lion King. And then we had sort of him leave. And then we had the Lilo and Stitch era and we had Tarzan and we had, uh, and those are the good ones. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, you have Disney animation falling off a cliff, which of course, so as with animation, the the company. Everything. And so in acquiring 
John Lasseter, Ed, Ed Catmull, and the rest of Pixar, you know, they revitalized... And Pete Doctor and like all the whole the whole brain trust. Totally. They revitalized Disney in a way that it's it's kind of hard to put a value on. The easy way to put a value on it is just multiply the number of basically that that value that we said that um, it contributed by two and basically say... Because for every one Pixar movie, you get one Disney animation movie. And, exactly. You know. And that's been largely true. They've both, both studios have basically done one big mega hit per year. Some, sometimes they try to, but sometimes you get frozen. Like it, it, it worked, you know, I, I, and so I do think, Ben, let it go. It's, it's, (laughs) if we were considering sort of strategic value, uh, then I do think you'd probably want to say Pixar contributed, not what did, what did we say? 3 billion a year, but 6 billion a year, something like that. Yeah. Um, but that wouldn't materially put it up with some of these other ones. Who wouldn't, you know, software it's hard to beat yep any other any other comments i don't think so the only other caveat that we said in the beginning i'll say again we're probably missing some in here so please write us in acquired fm at gmail.com join the slack hit us up in there but i can't wait to do a double click episode yeah. and a vmware episode yep um gonna be super fun i think this just pointed out the the sort of need to do both of those if not this season then soon yeah all right carve outs we haven't done them in a while oh we haven't done them in a while i got two first is the piece of software uh todoist uh oh, yeah. i'm loving it as, Me too. uh my to-do list apple reminders just like i just finally couldn't take it anymore it got buggy it was so so icky and uh even though my whole life ran on it for years so I tried a whole bunch of different, you know, options and um, finally landed on Todoist. And I, I just love it. It's great. It's everything I want in a, you know, to-do list minder, which sounds simple, but I manage my whole life on it. So, And I can assure you as someone who's built a to-do list That's right. thing over the years, is, 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 uh, it's actually harder, and this is any piece of software, but it's actually harder to make it feel simple simple than it actually yeah. is to make yeah. it feel jank well everything should be as simple as it can be but no simpler you know to do us does a really good job of this uh the other yeah, one what's the, what's the hamilton quote simple but not simplistic yes that's right yeah. simple but not simplistic uh which you'll hear from hamilton in a minute here my other carve out is uh you know ben a couple i saw on the whatsapp episode your uh carve out was computer glasses yep um our uh friends you know not a sponsorship, but uh, at Felix Gray, uh, direct-to-consumer computer glasses brand. Fans of the show listened, uh, reached out to us, and um, they sent us uh, uh, pairs of computer glasses, and I've been using them. They're awesome. I love them. Like, Welcome to the party. I, and, and the best part is I finally... Uh, I'm very lucky. My vision is normal. Um, but when I wear glasses, I look very erudite. But I'm, I was like, I'm not going to be that guy that wears like, you know, glasses that don't actually have prescriptions just to look erudite. <laughs> now I have an excuse to look erudite. I love it. I don't actually know what that word means. Uh, you know, like um, knowledgeable, intelligent. I know, see. Uh, I think you look that way anyway. <laughs> oh, thanks, Ben. All right. My carve out is the masterclass taught by dead mouse. Ooh. So if for anyone out there who's a, a masterclass subscriber um, or wants to give it a shot, I, I spent a weekend, a couple weekends ago uh, doing the watching and then experimenting a little bit on my own with producing some music and watching the, the dead mouse class. And it was awesome. It's cool that he agreed to do it because with that many hours of just like somebody talking about their craft, you really get a sense of, how his creativity works it's interesting from a learning perspective learning the software it's interesting from 
watching the ways in which he is resistant to using um, a lot of like out of the box software or cookie cutter loops. And he's li- mm-hmm. like, it's a massive wall of things that he's actually plugging into and dials and doing it all sort of analog and then recording wow. the analog sounds. Acquired goals. Dude, it's, it's, it's really cool. And it's, it's really creative for anyone who sort of likes to watch the creative process in action. I, I highly recommend it. That sounds um, awesome. Whether you're an EDM fan or not. So can't, can't recommend it enough. Do you think, uh, D Saul, uh, watched it and learned from it? DJ D Saul. Probably not. I don't know if that guy has the kind of time on his hands. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. All right. Well, listeners, if you aren't subscribed and you like what you hear, you should. This particular episode, uh, is different in that it has a accompanying blog post that we're going to publish sort of the full data table and a little, probably short paragraph on each company we got to write it. So who knows exactly what it will be. But the hope is to create kind of the first um, enduring piece of acquired, um, kind of acquired artifact um, outside of just these 100 plus episodes that we've done that is is a little bit more sort of referenceable and, and I think discoverable for folks who aren't aren't already big fans of the show. Feel free to uh, click the link in the show notes to check it out, uh, to share it with your friends. And we'd love to have a conversation about it both on Twitter at acquired.fm and in the Slack. By the way, you can join the Slack. Go to our website, acquired.fm, and there'll be a big button to get an invite to the Slack there. We have going on 5,000 people hanging out there. All sorts of great stuff going on. It's true. Well, stay tuned after this for an excerpt of our, uh, our LP episode with Hamilton Helmer, who is the author of Seven Powers. If you'd like to become an Acquired Limited partner, subscribing gets you access to our LP show, where we dive deeper into the nitty-gritty of building companies in real time. To listen, you can click the link in the show notes or go to glow.fm slash acquired and get a seven-day free trial for all new listeners. With that, thank you to Silicon Valley Bank and Wilson Cincini, and we will see you next time. See you next time. Welcome, LPs. I am here in lovely Los Altos, California, with a very, very special guest that we've been wanting to have on the show for a long time, Hamilton Helmer, the author of a book called Seven Powers, which is just spectacular and probably the best kept secret in Silicon Valley. We and I first heard about your book on uh, Patrick's and Best Like the Best podcast on the episode with Keith Raboy, where he said basically the same thing. And so I ordered it on Amazon and I look at the blurb uh, in the inside of the jacket. The people who agree that this is the best kept secret in Silicon Valley, it, the list of them is just kind of staggering. So Reed Hastings, who also wrote the foreword for your book, Daniel Eck, Michael Moritz, Peter Thiel, the former CEO of Adobe, Bruce, Bruce Chisholm, uh, Patrick Collison from Stripe, Daphne Kohler from Coursera, Jonathan Levin, who's the dean of Stanford GSB. Pete Doctor from Pixar, who directed Monsters, Inc., and Up, and Inside Out, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, we are so excited to have you with us here to talk about the book, talk about your work. Um, and yeah, I would say uh, we're, we're sorry to blow your cover, but it's sounding like that's uh, pretty well blown <laughs> as uh, no longer the best kept secret in Silicon Valley. I, I was going to say that that the fact that it's the best kept secret says something about my acuity as a good marketer. <laughs> <laughs> uh. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So 
Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote-unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers, such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. So, okay, let's get into the the fun stuff. Seven Powers, you know, when I read it, I to me at least, the thing that was so enlightening about it was... I see this mistake all the time in in Silicon Valley and in venture investing of like, everybody's like, tell me about the TAM. Got to target a big market. But that's kind of only half of the equation of what makes for a great enduring company is targeting a big market. Of course, you have to have a big market, but you also have to have... Um, you know, what you call power in the book within that market, you have to have defensibility, you have to have, you know, something that makes your company and your business uh, stand out. Can you tell us a little bit about how you define power and how you came up with it? Yeah, yeah, sure. So as I consulted with more and more companies, because I ran my own consulting firm for decades, three things started to become evident to me. One was that really strong performance is persistent. If you look at Intel's results this year and Intel's results next year, the fact that they have high profit margins will probably be true next year. And it turns out there's a lot of empirical work that verifies that, that that there's there's persistence. It's like the exact opposite of hedge fund managers year to year. Uh, or or mutual fund managers. You know, there's there's no persistence in mutual fund managers. Now, interestingly, as you probably know, there is persistence in venture capital. Yes. Um, and uh, and then the next thing, if you've done a lot of valuation work, I'm sure you've done a ton, and I've oh, I've done a ton, and I've even taught it. Uh, what you learn is it's all in the future. Yep. So if you take a ten, a company's growing about ten percent, uh, do a standard valuation model. What you find is eighty five percent of the value is after year three. Yep. Right. So, so persistence and in the future. So that says that if you can understand the issues that drive persistence, you're going to understand what drives value. Right. But then as I did more and more consulting work, uh, another thing came into focus, which was that the path to establishing that kind of persistence is not linear. There's a mm-hmm. step change. Yeah. So there's a period when a company can establish that. And uh, that window often closes, if you will. 
and it's the kind of business that all that you are so familiar with. It's in the earlier stage. Yeah. I think you, you called it in the book the, the takeoff phase of the market. Yes, yeah. yeah. So there's this. So if you think of a founder, there's this period of uh, where th- there's tremendous flux going on. They don't know who the customers are. Technologies can change you like crazy. They have all a wide variety of different types of competitors. And in that, there are all kinds of degrees of freedom about how you how you move. You know, the, the fact that people even talk about pivoting is just <laughs> suggesting that it is possible, in fact, to pivot. Yeah. Uh, ask Intel to pivot, and it yeah. won't happen very easily, you know. And they've certainly been trying for a long time. So what that says is there's this moment, but but then the problem is, from a strategist point of view, is that all the information is changing so radically that the the person or the group that has to process that is the the founder and his team yep. right and 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 it's not hiring somebody like me and making a recommendation or strategic planning or something like that it's 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 actually processing all this time and as you move through space and time understanding okay this direction looks a little better than that direction yeah and Silicon Valley founders and the venture capital ecosystem identify, here's a big, large market opportunity. Hundreds of companies get funded and rush in. And only one or two of them make it out. And so it's these decisions that That, guide, you know, what's going to create power. That's right. That's right. And so what that said to me was that what people needed uh, was not advice from an expert, but rather teaching to fish, trying to assemble a, a way of looking at strategy so that the people on the ground who are really making these decisions have a way of thinking about it that will, it's not, never perfect, but guide them in the right direction. But the problem in doing that for me was that providing a mental model like that, as I say in the book, it has to be simple, but not simplistic. It's simple so that you can retain it, not simplistic so that it's relatively complete. You don't miss a lot. That's a really high bar in strategy. And that's what took me so long. I mean, I wrote the book. It took me 20 years of writing it, basically. You know. And Hamilton, I'll tell you, like having read a bunch of business books and having an even larger pile of business books I've bought but haven't read and then probably even bigger than that of recommendations I've had but haven't made it to. There's so many different mental models for how to think about this stuff. Uh, I, I will say like thank you for taking the 20 years to do it because the the fact that there is a one page reference card that sort of like assembles right. this whole yeah. thing in grid, it actually does right. make it so you can reference the seven powers and sort of make decisions in real time. And it takes, I, I think I've read the book very recently. I'm sure it will take me some time to sort of like make that uh, system one thinking instead of system two thinking, but it, it's certainly much more accessible than, uh, I think, trying to weave your own fabric of lots of different theories. Let's talk about a few. We won't have time to go through all seven, but um, they're all fantastic. Maybe a good one to start with, since most of our audience is in technology and, and most of those folks are entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs. Counterpositioning. This is such a fun one. I know it's your favorite yeah. power <laughs> yeah, yeah. and particularly such a fun one because it's in many ways, the most relevant for startups and entrepreneurs in a lot of markets. Can, can you talk to us a bit about, about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I do have a special place in my heart for counterpositioning, I have to say, because it's so contrarian, and I'm sort of a contrarian person, I guess. A counterpositioning occurs if a, a company comes up with a new business model and challenges often a powerful incumbent with it. And uh, But for the incumbent to mimic this model, 
they would incur, or at least think they would incur, so much immediate financial damage that they just say, I can't go there. Even though maybe long-term it would be good, they just can't, they can't do it. So, and that provides, you know, a powerful disincentive for them to, to respond quickly. And if something's happening in the kind of flux that you guys deal with very fast, responding late may mean that you don't do it. So uh, I'll give you some examples. So Netflix versus Blockbuster. So Late fees. Yeah, 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 late fees. So late fees accounted for half of Blockbuster's income. Netflix says we're not doing it. And Blockbuster eventually mimicked Netflix. And who knows, but my suspicion is if they'd done it a year earlier, I'm not sure Netflix would exist, you know. Um, and so, and, and the, the place I got to kind of cut my teeth in this was I was a, a, a big investor, big for me, not big for them, a big investor in Dell in the 90s, right? And my investment hypothesis was that Compaq couldn't respond quickly to them because Dell was going direct. Um, and Compact had these lucrative arrangements going, th- going through stores. But there was nothing in the literature that sort of, I, I kind of, looking yeah. at as an investor, I could see that was true, but what, uh, you know, wh- why, you know? And so, so that kind of got me thinking about it from sort of a ground up, and, and eventually I was able to, to formalize it. Hamilton, one thing to, yeah. to push on there. So it seems like, and I, I'm remembering from your book, the the criterion are basically this new thing is both a good business but net negative for the big incumbent because of the cannibalization that would occur. Are there, are there any other things you would sort of add to to yeah? Define so that? so so there there are a few flavors of counterpositioning. One is that is that it's a a net negative and and therefore. Um, because their current model is so lucrative that actually, even if they did a net present value, they would end up with uh, deciding not to do it, even though they'll eventually the business will go to, to the challenger. And these are not mutually exclusive. It's very often true, I'd say almost always true, that there's, uh, there's uh, cognitive bias involved, which is that the, the incumbent They've done just great. Their model has worked for years. I mean, Blockbuster saying, oh, you know, we've got all these stores, you know, people love it. They come in, they can browse, you know, what's wrong with that? You know, and they think they just, and, and the idea of somebody doing this uh, rough and ready group sending out red envelopes in the mail, they'd say, what the hell, you know, they're, they're, this is just not going anywhere. So they're very cognitively biased towards thinking that their model works. Uh, and then there are also agency issues, uh, what economists call agency issues, which means that the the person uh, who controls the business may not be an, uh, have a lo- interest aligned with the long term interests of the business. So, so for example, CEO comp is often about you know this year's performance or the next few years' performance, and and so you you uh, so to upset the apple cart for a gain that will happen four years out. You may say, uh, you know, I, that's I just don't want to something that's there. really hard to do if you are a hired CEO of a large, long-lasting company. Because, that's and right. if, you're not a, if you're a founder, then most of your right. worth is in the equity of the right. company. And so the long-term matters. Right. It also right. reminds me, as you were talking, I hadn't thought about this, but um, obviously for startups, counter-positioning can be great. And Netflix is a fantastic yeah. example. But even um, remembering a, a blog post Bill Gurley wrote a number of years ago in the beginning of when Android was starting to take off, and I think the title of it was like uh, less than free, the new, like the most right. disruptive business model ever right. of, you know, you had Android, 
which was less it cost less than free right, like you, right. they would pay you to right, use right, it right, 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 uh, right, if you're right. a carrier to put it if you're a handset manufacturer to put right. it on your phones uh versus like nokia that's trying to make you know money or sell their stuff yep. like uh, even as google and a staff because they had the separate business model of search they're able to enter this adjacent market with a completely counter positioned right. business model right right um, right uh, Hamilton, listeners uh, who have read The Innovator's Dilemma, this is going to sound vaguely familiar and, and like this would be the power that's sort of most similar to that concept. How do you think about, in the same way that we asked earlier, what's the difference between power and moat? How do you think about counterpositioning relative to sort of the, that, that sort of grand theory? I recommend everybody to read that book, Innovator's Dilemma. It's, it's a brilliant book, you know, and, and Christensen was just a, you know, a scholar of innovation, you know, and, and deeply researched. I have great admiration for his book. But it's pretty different. Uh, so if you, if you want to get sort of mathematical about it, there's a many-to-many mapping between the two concepts, which is to say that counterpositioning doesn't imply, you know, uh, doesn't uh, apply disruptive technology and disruptive technology doesn't uh, imply counterpositioning give you some examples. So so I would argue that in and out burgers is counterpositioned against McDonald's. There's no technology involved particularly at all, uh, but it's counterpositioned. So that's one case. And it's not disruptive in terms of Christensen's no. philosophy was low end. Right. This is like right. a objectively worse right. product right uh, right 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 right, 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 right. <laughs> and, and yeah so you're going back to christian's original book which i think is the more interesting one where where there's a product that's kind of doesn't you know satisfy everybody i mean you you could argue that tesla's first cars were like that right? yeah right <laughs> uh, okay and so and then the other the other direction is that if something is a disruptive technology it may not be counter positioned so that's straightforward. And, and, and the fact that they don't map to each other and the fact that power maps directly to value or there's a one-to-one mapping between power and value, it means that uh, disruptive technology does not map to value. And so as an investor, uh, so and, and, and the, the simple thing about that is you can disrupt something and it can be a really lousy business. Yeah. It happens right. all the time. Right. You, know? you, you may not be able to realize... Yeah. You poison the well, differential margins. Yeah, you poison the well, but there's no good endpoint for or it. I think. I mean, I, we we may be uh, overly quoting Gurley here, but I think uh, I saw a recent tweet, something along the lines of, "There is an infinite amount of product market fit for selling dollars for ninety cents." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right. So, yeah, I mean, and, and you see this model all the time of of uh, so uh, yeah. So just pricing something so that people are attracted to it uh, and, and losing money is, is not, there's no power there. Uh, yeah. <laughs>